Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online at commonwealthclub.org. Welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Greg Dalton, Vice President of the Commonwealth Club and founder of the club's Climate One Initiative. Today we are discussing what the new Obama administration might do to improve the, move the country toward a low-carbon economy in which jobs are created and the environment is protected. What policies should be enacted at the state and federal level? What incentives should be provided to spur business innovation? Here to discuss those questions and much more, we have three distinguished experts from business, government, and a social enterprise. Linda Adams is Secretary of the California Environmental Protection Agency, Carter Roberts, CEO of the World Wildlife Fund U.S., and Jim Wonderman, President and CEO of the Bay Area Council and Association of Businesses. So please welcome our panelists today to the Commonwealth Club. Secretary Adams, let's begin with you. Uh, I believe that Governor Schwarzenegger has actually written a letter to President Obama uh, laying out what California would like to see in terms of energy environment. So can you tell us what, was that, what the governor asked of the president? Yes, thank you, Greg. In fact, uh, the governor has already written a few letters to the president. He uh, wasted no time in immediately writing to the president on January 21 requesting a waiver so that California can implement the program that we've adopted uh, requiring clean cars in California and 14 other states and the District of Columbia have also adopted that standard. So um, the president responded immediately and called upon his um, new uh, secretary of U.S. EPA to immediately uh, review our request. And we actually have a hearing coming up on March 5th in Washington. So um, the Obama administration is uh, moving very quickly on that request. And then the following day, the governor sent another letter to the president uh, um, more uh, broadly on uh, the issue of carbon, um, moving towards a carbon market and a, a, a green economy. And he made recommendations to the president on a cap-and-trade program and uh, suggested that the administration should use uh, the program that California is working on with the western states as a model. California has been working diligently for a couple of years to design a regional cap and trade program and we hope the administration will use that as a model. 
And, of course, we know that in California, the transportation sector is 40% of our greenhouse gas emissions. So in addition to our waiver request, we suggested that the president look at a low-carbon fuel standard um, similar to what California is working on. Um, we also made suggestions with regard to adopting a national renewable portfolio standard uh, to ensure more renewable energy um, in, this, in the country, and we know that we um, have a lot more that we can do in the area of energy efficiency. The waiver from the federal to allow California to have stricter regulations in their federal standards, that got a lot of attention. How is that going to play out? How quickly do you think you'll get it? And are the car companies fighting it? Um, our hearing, there will be only one hearing um, on March 5th, so it's coming up real soon. The uh, US EPA does have a public comment period and a process that they will go through. We are very confident that we are on uh, very firm legal ground. Um, unfortunately, the auto industry, although um, the states have prevailed over and over all the way to the Supreme Court, the auto industry, unfortunately, is fighting a standard that, um, in fact, we know they have already met our standard. Um, and uh, we designed a standard that, that allows them to use off-the-shelf technology. So we're still very puzzled why, why they're fighting something that will give consumers more choice. Carter Roberts, from the perspective of the World Wildlife Fund, what would, what's on your wish list for the Obama administration? I think the basic message uh, that we have given the administration is that its economic and foreign policies need to deal with what we call the basic math of the planet, which is population is going to grow to about 9 billion, consumption is growing even faster, and all that's occurring within the context of a finite planet. So those governments and those businesses that can figure out more efficient ways of using water and energy and land will not only flourish, but they will be more competitive over the long run. And so specifically what that means is we've asked that the stimulus package include the basic building blocks of a green economy that enables our green businesses to, to get a, a, jump, uh, a jump start on that. So that means uh, a, uh, a new grid uh, mm -hmm. to help uh, renewable energy come to scale. Um, it means uh, incentives for energy efficiency being built into not only federal buildings but also residential. So that's the first thing. The second thing is we have pressed that the new administration pass cap-and-trade uh, legislation, essentially to commit to emission reductions but to create a market that enables um, uh, businesses to move forward, to innovate, and to join uh, ultimately a world economy in addressing uh, climate change. And the third piece is to reframe foreign assistance and our foreign policy to make natural resources at the core of poverty alleviation and security issues. Because when we look around the world and we see the, the future sources of conflict, it's going to be over natural resources, and it's going to be in the Arctic, is the ice melts and all the uh, countries rush in. It's going to be in the Congo around minerals and natural resources, and it's going to be in places in the Pacific around fisheries. And so making that a cornerstone of foreign policy will lay the groundwork for more stability and security in the years ahead.
It's still early days, but are you seeing indications that that integration of those previously disconnected issues are being uh, integrated? So far, it's nothing but good news. We're um, getting, um, first of all, we've seen the stimulus package includes some of the basic building blocks that we've talked about. Um, the appointments in uh, uh, Sec- Secretary Chu, Jackson, uh, Browner, um, and Clinton have all made climate change and cap-and-trade legislation uh, a cornerstone of this administration's priorities. And, um, and what we've heard is, at least from Secretary Clinton, is a commitment to, re- to take the time to reframe foreign assistance before appointing a USAID administrator. So there's a, there's a moment in time right now where um, she seems to be taking, taking the time to really think about what, what should our foreign assistance look like, what should it include, and it needs to be cleaned up, and, and I think that'll happen. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, Jim Wonderman, from the Bay Area Business Perspective, uh, what it, or would you like to see from the Obama administration, and, and particularly if you want to mention the uh, stimulus package, although that is very much a, a work in progress. We're not sure how that's going to play out eventually. Well, I guess uh, we'd like to see some miracles occur. But uh, just to put it into context, and thanks for having me, uh, you know, this is the Bay Area Council. So, uh, you know, this particular business association, just to set the audience context, was the one that was one of the sponsors of AB 32 a couple of years ago. So there's a history here of an organization that's been pushing for a low-carbon economy for for quite some time. I think uh, we really appreciated Governor Schwarzenegger's leadership as well as others in the legislature to make AB 32 and more recently SB 375 happen so that California could uh, take its rightful place as leader uh, on reducing uh, uh, greenhouse uh, uh, gas emissions. Let's clarify, AB 32 is the Global Warming Solutions Act that the governor signed, and the other one is a land use Which really set a a national trend in the country, uh, which we hope will be followed. But now with uh, President Obama, in the White House, uh, we'd like to make sure that California doesn't s- suffer any competitive disadvantage that it possibly could in executing uh, that legislation. So we'd like to see uh, a, a real push uh, on a national basis uh, for uh, copycat-type federal bills. Similarly, uh, with uh, with the with the reduced emissions, it's great for the U.S. EPA to be able to rec- recognize uh, the Pavley standards, which would uh, more stricter emissions for California as well as other states uh, that could follow. But this should happen on a national basis. Uh, the, sec- the second area would be, it's been mentioned, that, you know, to have a really strong uh, best-in-class cap-and-trade system for the United States and the world. Uh, if we can do that, that tr- opens up tremendous economic uh, opportunities and really creates a push uh, for reduced carbon in a way that uh, support, you know, uh, supports underlying economic uh, growth. You know, third, we'd like to see, uh, you know, given that there's all this investment, we'd like to see it not go to waste. So, you know, we'd like to see these investments get made in a way to say, you know, let's not spend $800 billion and not address global warming in a significant way. You know, this is our opportunity to do it. We'd like to see some major projects get funded out of this so that when the smoke clears and the dust settles, uh, we can see the results. That would spur future investments and maybe in other generations. So, you know, let's build the California high-speed rail system. You know, the, there, there's a chunk of federal money that is needed. You know, let's get, you know, let, let's get that done. Uh, let's create a national uh, smart energy grid 
and that have tremendous uh, positive impacts uh, for the country. Um, we're very concerned that the debate about water in California is still about how to properly convey water out of the San Joaquin Sacramento rivers uh, down to this region and more so to the, the southern part of the state. And it may be just an, a, a non-issue for the future. We're really seeing uh, devastating economic impacts on the Delta. It may be time to try to figure out a way to, in, and, and it, it probably could be done, to invest in the effect, effectively green desal plants in the southern part of the state. There's plenty of water, but it's got plenty of salt in it. Uh, so that you don't have to convey the water. Uh, I think the, the uh, California aqueduct system uses about a fifth of the state's energy in order to move water north to south. At this point, probably time to rethink that. And let's, you know, let's fix the water problem in a way that takes care of our water needs in agriculture and in human use as well as uh, protects the environment here in the northern part of the state, which is really part of our core of our economic system here revolves around our environment here. Isn't desalination a highly energy-intensive process? It, it really is, but uh, the technologies that are, that are being studied at this point to be able to produce uh, more efficient uh, desal plants are in process, and you, know, there, you could join uh, the construction of these desal plants with maybe some very large wind and solar farms and things that could uh, that could mitigate that, and you, you're working with one-fifth of the state's energy uh, that's currently going just in moving water that largely gets evaporated sometime during the process. A lot of jobs could get created out of building that new system, and, you know, from a Bay Area perspective, you'd be investing in research, and, and we think, you know, some would say, let's invest and create all the jobs right now, but if you're making a major U.S. investment, uh, we, we think it's smart to invest in some uh, amount of, of good, solid research that's going to create the future companies that are really game-changing companies that will provide long-term growth and long-term job enhancement and, 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 and in the private sector where the, where the economy and the jobs are most uh, sticky. So we would, uh, you know, urge, you know, might not be what everybody in Congress would say, but that, you know, in, in, just in shaping future federal policy, we think that's the way uh, they should go. We've been behind in investing in science and research and technology in recent years. It's time to uh, rechart the course. Jim Wonderman is president and CEO of the Bay Area Council. Uh, let's stick with water. Uh, recently, last week, uh, Energy Secretary Steve Chu talked uh, about the potential impacts on agriculture and food in California because of water and painted a pretty dire scenario, not only for the agricultural industry, but for, for the su food supply. Carter, I know you think about food security and water internationally. Maybe you could pick up on that in, in a global perspective as there is no question that water is the next carbon. And uh, the world, as it uh, deals with the climate crisis, is, uh, is going to have to deal with the water crisis at the same time. And, um, and the climate crisis makes the um, water availability um, less predictable, um, and it creates new patterns of rainfall, but also the melting of glaciers. If you look in Asia, over a billion people depend on water that comes out of rivers from the Tibetan Plateau. Yeah. All that water is captured in glaciers. And as we lose those glaciers, um, instead of that water moving out of the Tibetan Plateau slowly, it will, it will leave the Tibetan Plateau suddenly, 
and the availability of that water for literally over a billion people will not be there. And so um, uh, California is one part of the U.S. that sees this acutely, um, but all you have to do is go to parts of Africa and Asia, and the poorest people on Earth are going to suddenly not have one of the basic building blocks of life. And, and so climate change suddenly uh, becomes less of a, um, an abstract scientific problem, and it becomes a basic geopolitical problem and a, and a problem in addressing poverty all around the world. Linda Adams, California is, seeing, uh, a, is in the midst of a water shortage, probably statewide rationing. How is, do you look at water from the um, perspective? Water in California is also going to be a very critical issue, and um, our Sierra Nevada snowpack is our free water supply reservoir, and we're already seeing the impacts of climate change and warming on that snowpack. So California will be very, very dramatically affected in the area of water. We're going to have uh, more water coming down faster. We're going to have uh, more uh, floods and less uh, water supply. And I'm also seeing um, we're we're looking at uh, creating uh, a a water bank in California like we did uh, during the drought in the early 90s where we were able to move uh, water from agriculture uh, to urban areas, and we're seeing a, a very interesting phenomena right now connected to the world food shortage, and that is our farmers are, are, um, will be able to make more money selling their crops overseas than selling their water. So it's a very dramatic phenomena that's occurring in California as we speak, that it's the the kinds of transfers of water between agriculture and urban areas in California are going to be harder to obtain because of the demand, world demand uh, for rice, for example. Back to the water wars of the 70s and 80s. Uh, Carter, um, do you think that there will be, um, you said water is the next carbon, and people talk about carbon disclosure. Do you think there's going to be consumer disclosure of embedded water, say, in consumer products, that sort of thing? Yes. Uh, We increasingly are working with companies in understanding the amount of water it takes to produce their products. And we have a whole team of people in Washington and elsewhere who have become specialists on supply chains, how much energy, how much water um, is required. If you take a cup of latte that we all or most of us consume on a regular basis, and you take apart how much water is required to produce the coffee, the milk, the cup, the lid... It takes about 200 liters of water to produce one cup of latte. And if you think about, if you multiply that times the number of cups of latte that our audience drinks on a regular basis, and you take that to scale. (laughs) Especially um, in Northern California. It it becomes, you you have an insight into uh, what is, um, how our level of consumption and our supply chain drives part of the water problem. The good news is that there are more efficient means of agriculture, more efficient means of production that use less water. And I was just at the, um, the TED conference in L.A. this past week, and one of the companies that was there, um, uh, Walmart, has, uh, is beginning to talk about uh, the possibility of beginning to label some of their products that they sell with, uh, with the kind of resources that go into producing them. It's already being done by a retailer at a very small scale in Europe, 
But when consumers begin to see uh, the possibility, begin to look at the embedded energy, the embedded water, and everything they buy, then they will start to demand products that are made in a different way. And I think that is the beginning of wisdom in changing uh, the way our, our economy works and also the, the type of demands we place on the planet. Interesting. You all mentioned uh, cap-and-trade as, as a way forward in terms of limiting uh, carbon emissions. I'd like to mix this up a little bit. And last night we had here on the stage Fred Smith, the founder and CEO of FedEx, and he said the following. I'd like to have your response to this. Uh, the political class is for cap-and-trade because the public doesn't understand it. A better path would be to have a carbon tax and reduce the payroll tax. We should tax things that are bad, carbon, and reduce taxes on things that are good, employment. So, uh, Carter, perhaps you, what would you respond to, to that approach to we should have a tax instead of cap-and-trade? The bottom line is you've got to put a price on carbon. And no matter how much we do in the stimulus package, the only thing that will drive the kind of transformation at scale that we need is putting a price on carbon. The preferred approach by, for World Wildlife Fund and the environmental community writ large is to approach that through cap and trade. Why? Uh, because by putting a cap on emissions, you are pegging the outcome that you want. And the outcome that we want is to reduce emissions by 80% by the year 2050. And only by doing that will we be able to address the problem of climate change. And so um, the, other, the other aspect of cap and trade is you create a system of commitments. Um, if the U.S. joins a global deal with other countries then you begin to have matching commitments on a global scale, and you begin to create a market in carbon credits and carbon reductions that drives the lowest-cost solutions. So that's our preferences for cap-and-trade for those reasons. The bottom line is without a price on carbon, we're not going to get to where we need to go. So are you saying that a tax would be more difficult to harmonize internationally, to align all the different tax uh, structures with, with 190 countries? It's possible, but it's easier with a cap-and-trade system. And a cap-and-trade system also, um, it it pegs the outcome that you want, which is not necessarily revenue. The outcome you want is to reduce our emissions by 80%. Linda Adams, the state of California has done a lot of work on cap-and-trade. Is it the right way? Yeah, and I I very much agree um, with Carter that cap-and-trade is a way to go over carbon tax. And to add... um, to his uh, reasons is that we we cannot be assured that a tax will incentivize anyone to reduce. May, they may just pay the tax, and we don't feel that a tax will um, incentivize new technologies. Um, so a tax is an option, but probably not the effective option. Jim Wendelman, does any of your members support a tax, or are they all on board with cap and trade? Uh, we think the cap-and-trade system uh, is the right way to go for the reasons that have been explained. Uh, we would agree with Mr. Smith uh, with regard to the payroll tax. Uh, it, it, it is the height of folly to be taxing uh, organizations for hiring people. So if the, we should try to move away from a payroll tax structure anywhere we can do that. And there are other places to capture the revenues. But I don't think in, the, in this case 
uh, it would be very difficult to set up a fair system that would have the ability to stimulate carbon reduction the way a cap-and-trade system would. And uh, so, so we, you know, I, I think we would reflect what the other speakers have said. How about a gasoline tax? That's reared a uh, comeback recently both in California and nationally. What's your position on a gasoline tax? You know, our gasoline tax in this country and in this state hasn't been increased since the early 1990s. It certainly it, it, it hasn't uh, nowhere keeps up with inflation since it hasn't increased. And so we think the gas tax is way too low. Uh, it should be increased, but it should be, you know, we, we would like to see the funds from the gas tax then be used to create the systems in, uh, to get people out of their cars and reduce a vehicle miles traveled, and, you know, that requires investment in mass transportation systems as well as in maintaining uh, the federal highway system, which is essentially broke. And and when people are sitting in a a congested, uh, on a congested freeway, that's one of the major contributors to to carbon. So there's great way, there are great ways laid out to use uh, gas tax funds that have the, that incentivize people to get out of their cars and use the funds that are created by that in order to give them uh, options for a mode switch, which is, uh, I think, ideal. Um, Yes, I'd just like to add and reiterate that transportation is our biggest source of emissions in California, and we need to address the issue of vehicle miles traveled. And when the um, price of gas spiked recently, we saw a reduction in in, um, people traveling in, in their autos and an incentive to use mass transit and bicycle and walk. Um, and I, you know, I can't speak for the governor, um, so I can't say that I support a, a, a higher gas tax, but it may actually be, I believe it's under discussion in the budget negotiations right now. Linda Adams is secretary of the California Environmental Protection Agency. We're discussing environment and energy at the Commonwealth Club. Our other guests today are Carter Roberts, CEO of the World Wildlife Fund, Jim Wonderman, president and CEO of the Bay Area Council. I'm Greg Dalton. We have a question from the audience that poses, I think, what's on a lot of people's minds, which is basically, can we afford to do this now with the California uh, government sinking in red ink in a national economic crisis, uh, can we afford to do the things in these Global Warming uh, Solutions Act and other things that we've been talking about? You know, can we afford to do it now? Would you like me to go first? (laughs) I think we cannot afford not to do it, and, and there is not a better time when we are developing economic stimulus packages to direct that investment in green and clean technologies. It would be foolish to do otherwise. And California has a long history of environmental leadership, and we know that our policies have resulted in uh, huge amounts of investment in green and clean technologies in California. Um, There was actually a dramatic uh, jump last year in uh, clean tech venture capital coming into California 57% of all the clean tech investment in the U.S. came into California last year, and that was $3.3 billion. So I don't think the timing could be better than to start moving towards a low-carbon economy. I'd love to just comment on that. Um, Some people say that uh, adversity builds character. Um, Others say adversity reveals character. And um, I know... All the institutions that 
I work with, either in the private sector or in the NGO sector, are looking at this financial crisis we're in the middle of and thinking not only how do they solve the financial aspects of it, but how do they use this as an opportunity to make those changes that they need to make. And, um, And we saw it with Japan after World War II. We saw it in Europe after World War II. We have seen it in, throughout history that um, there are those nations and those institutions that respond to crisis by remaking themselves and doing so um, that builds either future prosperity or competitiveness. And I, I tr- when you look around the world at those countries that are thinking over the long run and are building those industries that will compete over the long run, um, More often than not, it has to do with the environmental crisis. And Germany dominates solar panels. Uh, China is beginning to move ahead on some of the water issues. Um, There will be enormous demand around the world for those businesses that solve this problem. And so now is the time for us to put in place the regulatory structure and the investments to build the next boom in our economy and to do so over the long run. That's very much the argument put forward by Thomas Friedman in his latest book, uh, Hot, Flat, and Crowded, which is this is not an option, but it's actually a strategic competitive advantage for the next wave. Uh, He calls it environment technology to follow information technology. Jim Wonderman, uh, do you think that businesses can afford to uh, make those kinds of long-term investments now when they're in crisis mode? Well, you know, businesses are an important part of the greater society, and I think from a greater society standpoint, we can't afford to ignore the environmental challenges that we have. I mean, all of the worst predictions are happening much faster than people thought they would happen. And so I think business understands that as well uh, as any group. Um, from an from a economic side, here in the, particularly here in the Bay Area in California, we have a tremendous opportunity if we can lead. Uh, if we end up as being followers, uh, we could suffer a tremendous disadvantage. So the time to act uh, and lead uh, the creation of a, of a, of a carbon-reduced uh, uh, economy is now, and we can reap tremendous benefits from it. The, the institutions, uh, the, uh, the business uh, organizations, venture capitalists, uh, the scientists, uh, the engineers that work on this, they're largely here, and we need to keep them here. And they're being, they're, you know, there, there are countries and regions around the world, uh, institutions, academic institutions that are trying to attract away these leaders who are in lim- of limited supply. And right now we're very fortunate to have um, you know, much of that capacity focused here in the Bay Area and to you know, walk away from that because of this short-term economic ill as, as, crisis, as much of a crisis as it is, and it is, uh, would be the height of folly. So you know, we've, we, we have to focus uh, on just staying, you know, staying the ground on this and making sure that uh, as we solve this problem for the world, we solve it here in the Bay Area. And, we, you know, I think we will do it. We have a question here from our audience about some of the tools in the toolbox we're talking about and posits that some policy prescriptions or tools are more effective and less expensive than others. In particular, they mention renewable portfolio standards, CAFE or, or, or fuel mileage standards, as well as low-carbon fuel standards. So, Linda Adams, could you speak to the types of tools that you think will be most effective and, and most cost-effective, given the, the economic sensitivity of, of these times? Mm-hmm. 
Um, we, we know that California is already the most energy efficient state in the nation, but even we can do better. Um, we've saved, uh, consumers have saved $56 billion over the uh, last three decades, and we expect that we will save another $33 billion with additional uh, energy efficiency measures. Um, other states, I think, um, can do a lot better. So I think there's a, a lot of room in the area of energy efficiency. Uh, renewable energy is very, very important. Um, California is in a little bit better position because we don't have a lot of coal or um, d- uh, dirty energy in California. So um, I, uh, um, states need flexibility. I think the federal government needs to set... Uh, a minimum standard and let the states um, exceed that standard if they can. I know you're also doing some, mm-hmm. some work with, with China, and we have a number of questions here from the audience about mm-hmm. China. One is, Good. what about China? How do we help other polluter nations share the global mm-hmm. warming burden? Yeah. Uh, another refers to Secretary of State Clinton uh, going on her first trip abroad to Asia and China, and, and climate change was specifically on the agenda mm-hmm. on that point. For, so first, Secretary Adams. Um, I've actually spent a a lot of time in China since I was appointed to this job because um, our governor uh, thinks globally and wants us to be part of an international carbon market. And um, I have uh, uh, met with the top uh, uh, folks in China working on this issue. And um, we know that our uh, demand for consumer goods is really spurring their economy and creating their need to create... uh, coal-fired power plants. So Which I think sends we, pollution <laughs> to California. I think we have an obligation to help China, and they are seeking our help. Um, when the governor hosted an international uh, climate summit um, in Los Angeles last fall, we did have a very high-level delegation from China. Uh, one of the things that we are working on with them is the, the basic concept of reporting emissions you can't really have an international trading program unless you account for emissions. And uh, we're helping uh, China design um, an inventory, how to actually inventory their emissions and have businesses report those emissions. That's something that California excels in um, and that we are working with um, all of the other U.S. states to... um, uh, design a reporting system. So that's something we're working with China on. Another, uh, I think, a really easily understandable example in um, the area of uh, the market approach, the cap-and-trade approach, is that in uh, California we manufacture and use a lot of cement. We're building a lot of things in California, but we also import a lot of cement from China and other Asian countries and if California were to overregulate our um, cement industry, they would simply import more cement from China that were, was, was uh, uh, manufactured with coal, with coal-fired power plants. So we, we have an obligation to look at ways to allow our businesses to make investments in China um, to reduce... Um, that pollution and make sure that we're not creating more pollution by our uh, demand for goods from these other countries. Sure. 
Uh, Jim, did you have something, and then Carter? Sure. sure. Uh, the, well, China recently exceeded the United States as the world's uh, number one producer of uh, greenhouse gases, and between the two countries, we, uh, we not so joyfully uh, dominate the market. And so uh, I think it's uh, important that the two countries work together uh, to help uh, bring about a global solution. In the Bay Area, we have, a very, we have very strong economic ties uh, with China, which we've analyzed, and as a result of, of that, we've, we entered into a memorandum of understanding with a business government association in the greater Shanghai, Yangtze region of China, in order to uh, work together uh, to help our two regions grow economically. And at the center of that agreement is to work on environmental issues. The Chinese are absolutely uh, determined to address their environmental problems uh, as significant and, you know, as they are. And we have the capacity here in the Bay Area to help them. We recently, had, just in November, held a major uh, green energy conference uh, in Shanghai that was very well attended by uh, people you know, from the uh, mayors and leaders of the, of the government in Beijing and business leaders to, to try to get it, bring about a common understanding of the issues and the opportunities, of which there are many. A lot of business deals actually uh, got done in that process, which is you know, good for both economies. So uh, we're, we're, you know, we think it's an important program at the Bay Area Council, uh, and we, with our membership, uh, that's so involved in a lot of these uh, issues. We, we think we have a lot to bring to bear, along with the relationships where there's some, you know, I think, some significant trust with leaders in China so that we can lead on that. I will say I met with the uh, mayor of, of Shanghai, Mayor Han, and brought this large delegation on the trip before that. It's just a few months before, and told them that I had all of these leaders from the Bay Area companies and government with us, uh, you know, and we wanted to help on their environmental issues, and he said, thank you so much, and I appreciate it. And, you know, by the way, the, the president of MIT was here yesterday, and he said pretty much the same thing. So I think this isn't just us, and this is another area where, the, you know, the Bay Area needs to have a strategically focused effort to be the ones to help China that will help ourselves. Is China willing and able to pay a premium for a lot of those uh, new technologies and services that are expensive even in the U.S.? And China might, are they expecting those things on, uh, you know, favorable terms? Well, I think many U.S.-based uh, consulting organizations and, and uh, engineering firms and technology companies are already doing lots of business over there. And uh, I think China is prepared, you know, China has a very uh, a large uh, reserve of capital that they're looking to invest and spend in ways that uh, n to help them achieve the goals of their current five-year plan. And I think that uh, it's very, it's, it's absolutely uh, the case that they will invest uh, huge amounts of that capital in addressing uh, greenhouse gases and their other environmental issues. The question is, you know, will they be investing in American technologies or German ones or, you know, or others? So, you know, we have to be very strategic and, and aggressive about the relationship, and that ties to our relationships between the U.S. government and the Chinese government. We'll play into that. Certainly their stimulus bill includes a lot of money for high-speed rail. They're putting a lot in, in rail transportation and other, quote, green tech areas. Carter, do you want to comment on China? Well, I, um, the one item on our wish list for the Obama administration was um, to lead in creating a global deal on climate change. And Copenhagen is coming up um, in uh, December, November, December of this year. The world is watching, 
And whether or not the nations of the world come together around a new climate deal as a successor to Kyoto will very much depend on two things. One is whether or not the U.S. passes cap-and-trade legislation here at home, or at least makes a lot of progress in that direction. And the second is these bilateral talks between the U.S. and China. And um, when I, I uh, it was literally only four days after the inauguration that some of us were invited to the White House to see the new president, sign the directive, uh, directing EPA to reconsider um, uh, the California waiver. And no more than an hour after that, I went to the State Department to see Secretary Clinton announce uh, her new, this new post of a climate envoy in Todd Stern, and it could not be a better choice. And the fact that they are going next week to China to, uh, is the first international step uh, speaks volumes about the priority this administration gives to this set of issues. And they're making all the right steps, uh, but these conversations with China are at the center of whether or not we reach a global deal on climate change. So it's one thing to have dialogue with China. Uh, the lesson of Kyoto is that Congress needs to be on board, uh, and hopefully they've learned that lesson. And, and you know, John Kerry, as Linda knows, was in uh, Poland at the last climate summit uh, in December. He spoke to a, a climate uh, meeting in Delhi, where I was last week, with a lot of lot of people. Um, but do you see the coordination between the legislative and executive branch? And a lot of people say the U.S. can do lots of talks, but unless they have committed themselves in law to a cap and trade, when the negotiations start, the U.S. will not be in a strong enough position to get China and India to do what they need to do. Well, that's, um, it, it, that's absolutely right. And um, the specter of Kyoto was Vice President Gore returning to the United States, having agreed to a treaty and getting no votes uh, in Congress to support it, and you need 66 votes in the Senate. And, um, and so it is very much um, any international negotiations have to be uh, undertaken at the same time that um, the Senate is moving in the right direction and making the right commitments. Um, and I think everyone, no one wants to repeat the mistakes of Kyoto, and there are a lot of good signals of why we won't again. Um, part of it is this administration is full of senators who and right. um, key positions who know the Senate well and, um, and I think recognize this reality and I think we'll have a, a much more integrated approach this time around. Carter Roberts is CEO of the World Wildlife Fund. We're discussing energy and climate change at the Commonwealth Club of California. Our other guests are Linda Adams, Secretary of the California Environmental Protection Agency, and Jim Wonderman, President and CEO of the Bay Area Council. I'm Greg Dalton. We have a couple of questions here uh, from the audience about sort of the, the, the whole model of production and, and consumption. Uh, one is that... Uh, Theory states that we, we recognize sustainable scale, that distribution and efficient allocation um, has, an, has its flaws. It says that neoclassical theory has, has failed us. There's another one here about an integrated and holistic strategy on sustainable development. You know, another way to phrase this might be, can we kind of buy our way out of this problem? Carter? I, I, I think we can design our way out of this problem. Um, World Wildlife Fund just 
issued a new report with McKinsey and Company detailing 200 technologies that can reduce uh, energy use and emissions um, over the coming decades. Uh, those technologies are all available. Uh, we can continue to innovate around them, and that's just on the energy side. If you, if you look at land use, um, there are best practices that can result in a dramatic decrease in the amount of water and land you use to produce palm oil, soy, sugar, um, all the various commodities. And it's a question of moving these very complex industries toward best practices so they can produce just as much with less inputs of the various sorts we're talking about. And there are now uh, roundtable groups and trade groups that are working on those issues that WWF is advancing, and I'm quite hopeful that as we work with retailers, whether it's Walmart or Tesco or Safeway, and they begin to think about where their future products are going to come from, um, and you work with companies like Coke and Ikea and Hewlett-Packard, they are all keenly interested in building more efficient and secure supply chains because that is the future of their business. Is that still going to be enough with hundreds of millions of people coming into the middle class in China and India? I mean, you mentioned 9 billion people. I mean, the sheer, in the, the basic math of the planet, uh, does that model hold up with the basic model of, uh, math of the planet? So our estimates right now is if you compare the, the burden, the demands that we place on the planet with the carrying capacity of the planet, we're now demanding 1.25 times what the planet can sustain. And our estimates is that if China, if the average citizen in China consumes what we do here in the U.S., it will require two planets. And so um, we need to be um, careful about imagining that China looks to the U.S. and sees a model that they want to replicate in terms of consumption. And uh, not only do we need to um, create more efficient lifestyles here in the U.S., we also need to help China reach that means of efficiency, too. Um, I don't think it means a reduction in the standard of living, per se. There are ways to design homes. There are ways to design cars. There are ways to design energy that enable us to live very good lives and just uh, consume a lot less energy and land and water along the way. Linda Adams, a question from the audience uh, is along that lines that uh, whether sustainable consumption and production policies be led by state and federal governments who lead by example. So what is the state of California doing to reduce its own consumption and and, uh, energy footprint? Well, like I mentioned, California is already the most um, energy efficient state in the union. Uh, We have our uh, clean cars regulations underway. Uh, We're working on land use. Uh, we, we really need to um, use uh, absolutely every tool available. And um, I agree with Carter that we can still sustain our standard of living and just uh, do it more efficiently. And, um, and we also need to uh, recognize that uh, developing countries like China and India, are uh, they want a, a better standard of living, and we, we do have an obligation to help them achieve that in, in the most efficient way. Some uh, governments, a lot of corporations, Walmart is one example, General Active, have, have significantly restructured the, their people, their products, their supply chains around sustainability and carbon. Some governments have done that also. Australia has a Department of Climate Change. Uh, recently, the United Kingdom put together energy and climate together. 
The state of California still has uh, the Energy Commission is, is in another agency, and the Air Resources Board is in your agency. Have you thought about uh, getting married or merging well, those? Well, actually, I uh, chair the uh, Climate Action Team, so I bring together all of those agencies. Some of them are report to me, the California Air Resources Board, which has the primary responsibility to implement our global warming solutions law, but the Public Utilities Commission, uh, based here in San Francisco, that's independent, they have a huge role to play. The California Energy Commission, which is under a different agency, has a huge role to play. Our own um, Department of Transportation, Department of General Services, they have a role to play in in uh, transit and uh, efficient state fleets. So I bring all of those together. And the governor, in cabinet meetings, uh, he brings it up and reminds all of the cabinet that they are to be doing uh, their share. Uh, We also have, I chair a nonprofit organization, the California Climate Action Registry, where uh, many companies, um, um, both California and international companies, have joined that registry, and, and it provides a tool where they actually can register and know what their emissions are, and it's an individual can do that, too, for their household use, and um, record their emissions, and, um, and we make tools available for reducing emissions. The governor um, directed every state agency to join that registry. Mm -hmm. So my own uh, building, um, Cali PA building in Sacramento, I'm very fortunate in that it's the greenest high-rise in the western U.S. Um, We uh, register our emissions and try to find ways to become even more efficient. We have uh, smart lights in the building. We have solar panels on the roof. We made an investment several years ago that has more than paid for itself. Uh, we need to do that for all state buildings. It, it was newer. Uh, it was easier in my building because it was a new building. But for the older state facilities, it's, it's a little bit tougher. But we are uh, moving in that direction for all of state government. We need to look at our state fleet, you know, what kind of cars are we buying um, in California? We should be buying hybrids and very efficient vehicles. So you think the job can be accomplished through interagency coordination and it doesn't have to go so far as actually restructuring as some other countries have done? I think it can can be done through cooperation, although the governor has proposed a, a restructuring of all of our energy agencies because they are dispersed, like I mentioned, around yeah. state government. So he is proposing a reorganization that would bring them all together. Carter Roberts? I, I just wanted to comment on where change comes from. And, um, you know, you're, you're driving toward what is it going to take to get China and the rest of the world on, and, and in fact, and the U.S. moving in the right direction. And uh, when I look at models around the world, I see, an, first of all, the, the importance of leadership. Um, when you look at Walmart, which is one of the most advanced companies in the world on addressing environmental issues, it comes from the chairman of the company, it comes from the CEO, and it comes from the, uh, the individual who leads their sustainability work, all of whom have a deep, profound commitment to this set of issues. When you look at 
any of you who were parsing the inauguration speech of our new president, um, if you cared about these issues, you were applauding because there is a deep, profound intellectual and personal commitment to uh, the, the responsibility of our country to do the right thing on these issues and, and build the right kind of future. Um, and I, so you see leadership in the business sector, you see leadership in the uh, government sector, and you see, le- you see individual leaders. Uh, I think at the end of the day, you're going to see companies and states moving quickly out ahead, as Walmart and California have done. But at the end of the day, you're going to need national regulations, and you're going to need international agreements to really get at some of these issues at the scale that we, we really need to move on. And so that, that, that's the ultimate prize. So leadership is key, and some of these leaders are created or that they, they come to this. Right? Lee Scott had an epiphany in 2005. He gave a very famous speech. Lee Scott uh, recently left his office uh, as CEO of Walmart. Uh, do you know whether the, the next CEO is as deeply committed as he was? And, and did Scott sort of embed it deeply enough in the company that it will live on that one charismatic leader who was the evangelist? Well, there's a... Um one interesting fact about Walmart is, um, is the ownership of Walmart is um, the Walton family is deeply committed to this set of issues. And so um, it came as no surprise to me um, that um, the, the new leadership in the company is not only committed to continuing Lee Scott's legacy, but also inventing new ways, the, the next generation of environmental progress. And so... I haven't seen, if anything, they've stomped on the accelerator um, to even take it one step further. Carter Roberts is CEO of the World Wildlife Fund uh, U.S. Jim Wonderman from the Bay Area Council, we have a question about the opportunity for green jobs in in California. Is it going to be a big driver of jobs? Well, it will be if uh, we put in place the right uh, set of policies and investments and we have a strategy uh, statewide and regionally that supports it. The, the uh, opportunity uh, is, is uh, almost immeasurable because we have tremendous assets here in the state, our, our ability to invest, the, the size of the California economy, uh, the, the uh, research in, leading research institutions, and the will and passion Californians have and hold uh, toward the issue as well as the leadership uh, of the governor and, and the legislature on, the, on this area. But we are very big and tend to be unfocused in our strategy compared sometimes to other places. And so I think it's really uh, a concern right here in the Bay Area. I don't know how many different cities of our 101 think they're going to be the capital of green tech for the world. So that's well and good, and competition uh, is always in order. However, uh, you know, there are other places that are more strategic and are thinking about what are their particular strengths, uh, you know, where are the opportunities best, and so forth. At the end of the day, I think uh, we have so much to offer, and there's so, there's so much capacity here. Uh, you know, with just a little bit of uh, coordination, we, uh, you know, there's no reason we can't produce uh, jobs in the hundreds of thousands, if not in the millions, that uh, center around the, the green tech uh, economy. We have businesses... Uh, you know, I, as a sideline, I teach a, I teach a leadership course at the uh, UC Davis Graduate School of Management, and I bring in leaders, and I've, I've 
created the course around corporate social responsibility because to me, business leadership and corporate social responsibility are now inexorably linked. And you know, leader by leader, CEO by CEO, I bring uh, these folks before the class and their strategies and their thoughts and their passions around developing their companies as leaders in sustainability as well as getting, figuring out how to get into that business. Uh, and these are highly strategic, motivated, and, uh, and uh, uh, successful people, leads me to believe that uh, there's a very bright future here for us in this area. And you know, we're properly focused on it, uh, no question. We just, you know, we just need to be strategic from a policy perspective as to you know, what we're going to put where, how we invest in it, and how we reap, reap the benefits of it. So what does that mean, that, that San Jose would have certain kinds of jobs and biotech would be somewhere else, that there's sort of concentrations of jobs and investment? Is that what you mean by being strategic and coordinating? Y yeah. If you, if you look, uh, for example, at Los Angeles, Los Angeles being a, uh, being a, uh, a large city uh, has, a very, has a very distinct policies around those things. They're looking at, okay, what, are, what, are, what industrial areas are properly zoned for this kind of work? Uh, where can we do? You know, where can we accomplish a green job training the best? Uh, where can we? You know, where can we manufacture solar panels the best? Where can we do biofuels research the best? And they are thinking about that. And we have a tendency here in this region to be a little bit more, uh, uh, you know, not not as effective as that because we have so many jurisdictions. So we at the Bay Area Council, we're put we're putting together. Uh, with the support of our Bay Area Council Economic Institute, which includes the public agencies and the academic institutions and labor, to try to bring together a region-wide strategy for a Bay Area climate uh, action team that will drive uh, the development of uh, green technology and the Bay Area's leadership in that, as well as uh, how do we, uh, you know, how do we not only meet but exceed the uh, the standards that have been set through AB 32. How do we adapt to climate change since we are rather surrounded by water here and we'd rather not drown it in the future if possible. So, uh, you know, there's some work that needs to be done collectively that isn't necessarily honored by all of the jurisdictional lines that, you know, are rather, you know, built into history but don't serve us well. Uh, you know, we need a, a regional economic strategy. And, and, and regions, really, if you look around the country, every single region ha, you know, sees this as an opportunity, too. So the United States government, working with those key regions that can deliver on this, needs to come up with a national strategy that will support this kind of uh, development. It's quite, uh, you know, I think it's quite possible to do all of this. And uh, as Carter said, if you listen to the President's uh, inaugural speech, you know, he means to do it. And uh, we, we think it will happen. I never thought I would hear electrical grid in an inaugural speech. It was quite, it was, it was, uh, quite interesting. Uh, a related issue to green jobs. Green jobs, often uh, people talk about those. They're talking about inclusion and bringing in people who haven't traditionally been part of environmentalism. You know, environmentalism is typically, Carter Roberts, thought of as uh, relatively affluent, more Caucasian, um, in here in California, environmentalists, uh, you, you, the badges of being a green person are buying a Prius and uh, make that latte organic or organic food, solar panels on your house. These are all relatively elite things. What are, is the World Wildlife done or the environment doing in general to, to be more inclusive as we go through this transformation? It's the right question because if we are going to pass cap-and-trade legislation and get the votes in the Senate, 
we're going to need to move beyond uh, the usual suspects and the usual constituency uh, regarding the importance of addressing climate change. And so um, you're beginning to see that expansion occur right now. Um, My wife, who is a scientist with Environmental Defense Fund, just produced a report that takes low-energy technologies, parses the supply chain, and uses Google Earth to map where jobs are created district by district around the U.S. She has done this work and issued this report with members of various labor unions because it's not just about climate change. It's about job creation. And, um, and when you take apart the component parts of some of these new technologies, they are made in some of the most traditional of industries in the U.S. And so finding ways to connect the dots between the solutions and the different constituencies that are affected, either um, mostly positively, then you, you can begin to expand the number of people, the type of constituencies, and hopefully the number of votes that will lead to the right kind of regulation that we need. The, uh, did you want to say something, Rita? Yeah, sure. I'd like to um, just uh, talk about something that I'm very proud of that we're working on in uh, California. And I know we need to uh, work with uh, community colleges on uh, programs such as mm-hmm. you know installation of solar panels, et cetera. Right. But um, Governor Schwarzenegger recently formed uh, a gang uh, prevention task force of, made up of almost the entire cabinet and we're looking at uh, uh, directing money to current programs such as uh, Homeboy Industries in Los Angeles, the local conservation corps that are already doing uh, conservation-related uh, projects and uh, making sure that we f- uh, can funnel money into those existing uh, programs where we um, we get more than just the benefit of employing uh, a, a, a at-risk youth, but also creating a green-collar uh, job. So solving multiple mm-hmm. problems at once using this, Carter? I forgot to mention one thing in response to your last question, which is um, uh, two years ago, uh, we sought in Australia to convey the importance of climate change and also to mobilize people to think about what they can do uh, to address the issue. And my colleague, who, ran, who runs WWF Australia, had this um, interesting <laughs> idea of getting everybody in Sydney to turn the lights off for an hour and in that space and time commit to changing their energy consumption during the rest of the year. They had 2 million people do it. Last year, we decided to expand it to a few cities. Well, the next thing we knew, we had 400 cities lined up around the, uh, around the world, including San Francisco. And uh, uh, your mayor flipped the switch on the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, the Google homepage went dark. Um, Facebook pages were created. And it suddenly went viral. 50 million people participated last year. This year, the goal is to have hundreds of millions of people participate around the world. We, now, we know that the Las Vegas Strip is going to go dark. Um, we have icons around the world in Rome, in uh, Japan, in China. They're all going to go dark. Um, I'm hoping we might actually convince um, someone to turn the lights off on the White House uh, for that hour. But, um, but this is all about making this issue a mass issue, not just confined to the pe- people who drive Priuses, and also to mobilize people to actually do something positive about it. 
to in the in that hour to actually make commitments in their institutions or personally to do something about it. We need more events and more uh, more ways to create a movement that goes beyond uh, the usual suspects. And I think this is one promising thing. And I hope for all the people who are listening that on March 29th you turn the lights off in the San Francisco area and commit to do something in your 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 institutions during the rest of the year. I remember vividly standing on a street corner in San Francisco uh, with my eight-year-old son watching on that particular moment, and a few lights went off, and, and many, many didn't. But I think hopefully next time it'll be, uh, it'll, it'll be e- even more and lead to – are you confident that can lead to, to sustained behavioral change, or is that a one-time flash in the pan? It's all about sustained behavioral change. But it's, it's, it's asking people to take that moment in time to make a commitment during the rest of the year. Sure. Linda? Uh, Greg, I'd just like to take the, this opportunity to put in a plug for one of my favorite programs at Cal EPA, and that's my um, environmental education program, where we are actually writing and designing textbooks that will go into K-12 through classrooms to teach and build it into the curriculum to teach uh, K-12 through children about the environment. We have uh, textbooks in uh, different uh, uh, schools around the state as a pilot project, and we're getting a tremendous uh, uh, response and feedback, and we go before the uh, State Board of Education early next year um, for them to adopt uh, those textbooks. Linda Adams is secretary of the California Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, We've reached the time where we have about two minutes left, and I'd like to ask each of you, uh, the $64 million question, which is, do you think uh, that the U.S. will have legislation in place uh, and go into Copenhagen from a position of strength? Linda, let's start with you. I know you were in the Poland uh, negotiations. I saw you there. So yes. you're probably planning to go into Copenhagen, maybe Absolutely. with the governor. And I believe the governor is planning to go, yes. Um, we are very hopeful that there will be, um, uh, like Carter mentioned, either a bill that has been signed by the president or significant progress. I think it's going to be a little bit tougher because of the diversity of the states, and, um, but we are very, very hopeful, and we know, we have heard uh, President Obama uh, state that he will uh, uh, have the the United States play a leadership role. So that's very, very important. And we know um, that the world is watching and very, very hopeful about the United States. And when we hosted our international summit, um, we surprised all the participants by uh, showing a a video that uh, the president-elect at that time, um, uh, uh, President Obama, uh, provided us. And uh, we got a standing ovation um, for a video, so that was uh, that. I think uh, spread around the world very quickly. We sh- we uh, had that video in uh, the United Nations talks in Poland, and there is uh, a lot of hope around the world. Yeah, for those of us who were in the room, it was quite amazing to see a standing ovation for a video. Carter, you were there. Uh, do you think that uh, last year Warner Lieberman got what forty-eight votes in the Senate? Do you think it'll get over the hump this year? The new boxer bill. It needs to get over the hump this year. And we need to go to Copenhagen with a strong commitment. Um, And we need to move this issue beyond being a partisan issue. The environment 
historically has always been a Republican issue. All, most of the great laws were passed by uh, Republican administrations, and, um, and it is time that this became a truly bipartisan issue. And we, um, and we receive the votes in the Senate to make the commitments we need to make. I, we need to have a law passed and uh, going into Copenhagen. And we need to rejoin the world community that we have um, in recent memory snubbed. And uh, this is a global problem. Um, and uh, a ton emitted in China affects us every bit as much as a ton emitted here in the U.S. And this is a global problem, and we need to reach a, a global deal. Jim Wonderman, a lot of companies in the Bay Area are, are for cap-and-trade, but there's still significant resistance among some, uh, some companies. The Chamber of Commerce in California seems to be equivocating. What do, what do you see happening, and how, what are you doing to, to support a deal? Well, I think largely the business community is uh, supportive of, of cap-and-trade uh, with outliers, uh, uh, and there'll continue to be debate about it, but I think that, uh, that the reason, a core reason why President Obama is President Obama is that over this issue. I think this is a, defi- a defining matter for the direction the United States takes. Uh, being a global leader uh, in this new millennium isn't necessarily about, you know, just holding, uh, you know, having the biggest guns and uh, weapons of mass destruction. It's about uh, ensuring that we actually have a world. Uh, you know, there's a people in the uh, on listening on the radio can't see a gentleman standing in the back of the room who's holding a, uh, a, a baby a few months old and rocking back and forth. And we all have to think about the future of that child. Uh, we don't have a choice here. And the United States has to be in a leadership position. And I, I don't have any doubt that uh, the Congress will pass a bill and the president will sign it and will go to Copenhagen a, a, a leader as we should be on this. Perfect ending from our panel. I'd like to thank our panelists. That was Jim Wonderman, President and CEO of the Bay Area Council, Carter Roberts, CEO of the World Wildlife Fund U.S., and Linda Adams, Secretary of the California Environmental Protection Agency. I'm Greg Dalton, Vice President of the Commonwealth Club, and I'd like to conclude our program, and thank you uh, for coming. And now this program of the Commonwealth Club, celebrating 100 years of enlightened discussion, is adjourned.